Welcome to Friendly Shadows Fast Tracks. Today, Kelly is talking to Adam Whitaker. Let's get to it. It says it's working. <laughs> Adam, thank you so much for joining the Shadows today. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Can you let the listeners know basically who you are and what you do? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks very much, Kelly, for having me. And uh, so my name is Adam Whitaker, um, and I am currently a mixing engineer. And I'm also coaching people. Those are my two jobs I have at the moment. How long have you been mixing? Uh, well, you know, this, this is one of the questions that <laughs> you, you kind of like the idea of the question until you look at the reality of the answer, because that kind of puts <laughs> your age out there. And um, I would say that I, I've been working professionally since about 19... 94 or so so a lot of years almost 30 i think that is now have you noticed differences in techniques or as technology changes have you noticed that there's even different philosophies that have developed because of the new and modern technology can you expand a little bit about how it's changed over that course of time well i mean that's um i feel I feel super lucky uh, to be uh, of the generation I am because my first experiences in the studio were actually in the eighties. So the way I got into this whole thing is like, I think many, many people started uh, starting off as a musician, you know, who wanted to conquer the world um, and then started to go into studios and really fell in love with the recording process and I kind of figured out I was never going to be uh, Randy Rhodes and that my love for recording was probably bigger than my love for, for making music. So I feel lucky to be at this generation because my generation is a generation that was young enough to be able to start working on analog in traditional studios and then live through every single transition which has been made since. So the dawn of digital into the professional world and then the slow evolution into, you know, modular multitracks when they first become affordable, you know, for like 10,000 bucks, you could have 24 tracks of ADAT or DA88, for example, which is revolutionary at the time because professional sounding recording was just not available. And then, of course, since then, we've seen, you know, the slow movement towards recording in DAWs, which is pretty much how everything is recorded today. So have I seen changes? Yeah, I've seen massive, massive changes. And that's on every level from the technology to access to the technology which makes um, a huge difference. So like at the beginning, you know, you were working with professional engineers all the time and you would, you would hook up with a professional record producer and 
it was hard to make recordings in those days. You had to really commit to it. You know, you had to find a budget. Um, I remember spending, um, this was when I was, you know, in the US, probably at the very end of the 80s, maybe, maybe 1991. I think we were spending something like $35 an hour for studio time. And that made it a very serious proposition, you know, to find that kind of money as a band and, and go into the studio. Whereas now you, you get a, you get a laptop, you spend $199, you have logic and you have the world at your fingertips. I'm wondering if that change in technology has brought about, you know, cause you've had clients since then. Yep. I wonder if they've approached you with different sets of ears or it's like, Oh yeah. I wonder what I'm trying to say here. Has it changed the way you've dealt with artists as well now that they yeah. have DAWs at their house too? That's a big difference. Um, I mean, I, I guess if you were, I don't know, Whitney Houston or someone, maybe you had a home studio, you know, uh, Stevie Wonder. <laughs> but yeah, most people didn't have home studios. And, and at that point, um, I remember being so excited getting my hands on a, a, a four track, you know, cassette based four track. And you know, that was realistically the extent of my access to recording technology as a, a, a young musician in, in the late 80s. Whereas now, like we're saying, um, pretty much everybody has a computer and pretty much every musician has some form of DAW. So people are coming into it with a, a much higher level of knowledge about recording in general, the recording process and the mixing process. So yeah, that's a, that's a, a huge change. Now you also have resources for learning, which were, weren't available. So for instance, the way I learned to engineer was by being the classic annoying kid and hanging out a bit too much at the guy's studio that we used and that slowly transforming into me saying, Hey, can I come every Tuesday and, and I'll make your coffee and sweep your floor and get just, just so I can be in the room. And, you know, then, then that translated to being, you know, assisting and then eventually engineering. And then eventually, you know, I became a producer and, Eventually, from that, I decided that I wanted to focus on mixing. So, yeah, I mean, people's experiences and access to information, it's much, much different now. Now, it has a downside, unfortunately, in that when you have the world at your fingertips and you have no structure, you know, in which to learn, like many people call themselves producers, but uh, I, I would argue that 99% of them, you know, couldn't produce a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because they have never lived through the experience of professional record making. So it's a two-edged sword, really. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that too. Can you talk about the difference? You and I have had private conversations about the difference between a way an artist might hear something they hand to you and the difference between a producer hears it. Is there? Is there a... 
a process that you develop in years of mixing where you hear so many different artists yep. that you develop a taste for an audience? Um, there's, two, there's kind of two, two parts to, to that question, uh, and we'll get to both of them. So the, the first part was really about production. And when you wanted to be a record producer, you had to spend a lot of time, first of all, developing the skills. And, and second of all, using the skills. And that took time. And your life as a producer depends on one thing, and that is the ability to produce records which do well for the artist or record company. If you, if you cannot do that, then you will not succeed as a producer. It's, it's just that simple. So you, you kind of have to go through this journey and start off making, you know, records. I don't know with your friends or little bands that nobody's heard of who will put their confidence in you. And even then you have to, at the end of the day, produce something that is better with your participation than it would have been without your participation. And, and that's kind of the key. And as you go further up the ladder, there's more and more pressure. And in the sense that it's a massive responsibility to deliver something which is going to work as a record for the artist and label. And obviously now, uh, especially in the DAW age, most people are self-producing and don't, they will not have had the previous exposure to working on sessions and records or with people who are producers. So they don't have that experience. And quite frankly, most of these records are, are not ever going to make it into that kind of uh, commercial realm. So that's kind of the answer to the first part of the question. The second part, do you, you kind of ask something along the lines of, do you develop a taste um, maybe with a commercial angle? And the answer to that is yes. Now, one of the things I think that all people who work professionally in this industry have is a voracious appetite for music. And ideally, that's your motivation for getting into it in the first place, that you couldn't live without it, that you're obsessed with it. That's all you think about. It's all you want to do. And if you're that person and you, you consume music, so for instance, I'm the kind of annoying person who leaves the studio, goes you know, starts my normal life, goes into the kitchen and immediately puts on music. <laughs> so, you know, it never stops. But by being a voracious consumer of music, you start to understand how it works and what it sounds like. So you, you start to ingrain within yourself what works. And this is why it's always, always useful to listen to successful or commercial artists or music because if you listen to enough of it and you pay enough attention you start to realize oh you know this is this is kind of where a vocal has to sit 
you know it has to be this kind of loud and you know it has to kind of impact me in a certain way and the same with all of the instrumentation and the arrangement and so on and so on and so on so the the, the short answer is yes you do you develop you, you develop a set of ideas and your taste is informed by your music consumption and and most people i think like me are you know voracious as in don't just listen to one genre you know we're just all over the place if it's exciting and interesting we listen to it you know whether it's you know jazz from the late 50s or you know lizzo's new single or something you know it it makes no difference to me it's it's music tastes have been developed or I wouldn't say matured, but changed since knowing you and knowing the music that you've turned me on to and my ears are different. And I'm wondering if there's maybe something you can talk about that doesn't get too technical. Sure. How you, the difference in the way you hear starting out and the, and the and the what you're listening to as you because I know you have all these things, these technical things like compression and reverb and all that stuff. But I'm wondering if there's layers to the growing process yeah. that you like, man, I did you know, 10 years ago I would have never heard that. It's a little bit of a roller coaster. So <laughs> it starts at the bottom, goes up to the top, and then you come down to the bottom again. Um, and by that I mean that you start off you know, as a just music listener. And then quite often you make your journey into being a musician. And at that point, you start to think about the component parts of music, right? So, you know, you're a guitar player, you join a band. And at this point you realize that, oh God, you know, my drummer's got to play in time and my bass player's kind of got to play with my drummer and I have to kind of work with both of them. And then, hey, then it starts to sound more like the music I listen to rather than you know, three kids playing in a garage. So, and it's the same, the same with audio, you know, you, you get into this point where you're kind of really, really focused on the construction, you know, how did they do that? You know, why do my drums not sound like those drums or what is this effect or, huh? How come in, you know, I don't know, smells like teen spirit you know hurts singing really soft in the verse and then it gets to the chorus and he's screaming but you know what the volume doesn't really change it was more of a perception that it was loud and quiet and so you you start to really 
pull things apart. And that's your first stage kind of as someone who transitions into engineering. And you have to kind of learn the techniques and the technical side of it. And then it gets really bad after that. Then it really, you know, your music appreciation kind of gets completely ruined because, and you see this a lot with the uh, young producer and engineer community um, on the internet. They start obsessing about things like, you know, oh, but the hi-hat sound, you know, so it gets really granular, you know, oh, I, I must use this brand of EQ on this or it won't be as good as, you know, Alex Tumay's latest thing he's mixed. And so you get in this kind of sort of negative over-technical, can't see the wood from the trees phase. And then what happens if you, especially when you, start to work professionally is you move away from that again and you learn especially i think as a mixer if that's your intention of growing up to be a mixer that you realize one day that you know what um i need to listen at all times like a regular person a consumer a listener a fan because this is this is who you're serving. You're, you're serving you're serving kind of a, a few people. You're serving first first of all, and most importantly, the song. So you're serving the song above all. Then you're kind of serving. This is going to sound bad in a, in a way, maybe, but you serve the song first, and then you serve the artist. Because sometimes the artist might not have the understanding to that that the song this piece of art they've made needs to be presented in in a certain way to resonate to the most important people in the world which are normal listeners so yeah you go through this roller coaster ride and you come out the end where your goal is basically to make something which is going to work for the song and the artist oh it's just it's a delight to hear you talk adam because i you know, some of our philosophies are so in line with each other. Now, some of them are different, but some of them are so in line with each other about serving the song. You know, I've been saying that for 20 years. And I want you to talk about your basic, broken down, philosophical approach to a mix when you first get a song. Well, yeah, that 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 can be complicated you have first of all you you have to listen to it and when you listen to and this is why it's good to work with other people and we could touch on that later a little bit if you like but i haven't sat there and worried about you know that particularly tricky vocal line that it took you two hours to do or fretted over the fact you had to tell your best friend that his, you know, guitar line isn't going to make it onto your recording. And I haven't been through all the trauma and the work and the fretting and the changing and rewriting or any of that. I'm just presented with the song, which the artist or producer or, you know, whoever, is, you know, whoever's baby it is, 
has put together the best version that they intended to make. So that's the first time I hear it. And sometimes you get a rough mix and I don't listen to that straight away. I kind of listen to the tracks and I try to figure out what the intention is basically that can then come to life through a few roots. Like for instance, you've got styles and genres. Okay. So if you're listening to contemporary pop music, you know, which direction it has to go in, you know, there's, there's a certain set of parameters that that's working in. And that can even be time driven. So we might be working on an Americana style song, let's say. And then the client might come to you, no names mentioned, and and say, I have a really strong uh, 70s height of their success Fleetwood Mac vibe in mind for this. And they might not have recorded it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with a, a multi-million dollar Tusk style budget, but you know, you as the artist has told me, yeah, this is what I envisioned for the song. And then, you know, it's my job to go ahead and build that house and, and try and understand the song's intention and then the artist's intention. And that's something that I often do. Some songs just tell you what they want. You know, you, you hear it, you go, oh, yeah, I know because you're a voracious consumer of music and hopefully, you know, you develop a, a reasonable musical taste. You, you kind of like instinctively know, oh yeah, okay, yeah, that's how this goes, you know? And, it, and for me, it, it's quite funny, a recent challenge I had about, uh, I don't know, let's say five years ago, this started for me is uh, I started to work on Bollywood music which was deeply out of my comfort zone. Um, a, a Bollywood song will happily skip through classical country music and heavy metal in five minutes. <laughs> so, so your uh, challenges as a mixer are quite unique. And, and you have to have a grip on all of these musical genres in, in order to be able to deliver something for cinema, so. to maybe further expand on what you were what you were headed there okay well a lot a lot has changed you know we discussed a little bit about the technology and availability of technology and this has been also impacted by money so for instance as a as an indie artist you could 
make an indie record. You could spend money making an indie record and you could make it quite good and you could work with professionals and make a CD and put it out. And then over the course of the next year or two, you know, sell a few thousand CDs. If, especially if you're a, you know, a band that plays live, um, you could quite easily do that. And, you know, I would work with artists who, you know, were true indies and they would go out and they'd, you know, sell a couple thousand CDs, you know, so, some more and, and do quite okay. And obviously that's really been impacted by streaming and the drying up of revenue. Plus the fact that a lot of people making music now have no intention of touring or doing anything of the sort and uh, somehow surprised when they don't make money um, <laughs> when they're just getting fractions of a penny from streams. Um, so this has caused people to do everything themselves and there's nothing wrong with having developing new skills, but it takes forever. You're never going to get, to a level which is going to be competitive, shall we say. Um, and that means that your end result is always going to be not as good as the things which are succeeding and being successful. And this is why, and obviously I would be biased as somebody who mixes for a living, but, um, I pretty much that I don't hear anybody putting anything out that I know I could not have made better with a, with a mix. And I also know that, that people tend to have more success with things which have been done properly. And they because, and this is the simple reason is people outside the musical community did not grow up listening to half finished demo sounding recordings. They, everybody in the world, your mom, your, your, your friend, Steve, who runs a car dealership, whatever these people listen to the radio, they listen to commercial music and they've never heard these kind of super rough recordings in their life. It's only, other people who are making similar kinds of recordings who can tolerate that. And this includes people in the press and in the media and the gatekeepers for radio, unless you're talking about, you know, maybe some little in internet radio type things. So, and this is why people have no success with, with their, uh, with, with their projects. It's just not, up to the level it can be. And the second side of this, the other bonus is everybody you work with um, who's working as a professional has a network. So the way it works is, um, you know, I have a bunch of people I know and the art guy has a bunch of people they know and the mastering girl has a bunch of people she knows and everybody through the process has a network and they all tend to champion and help 
and encourage. And if you make something great, we'll try and hook you up, you know, because ultimately for all of us who are, you know, working professionals, our success can only come one way and that's through your success, which is why the most painful thing in the world is to put your heart and soul into something and then watch someone just kind of do nothing with it, like not release it or do no promo or, you know, think about it as very casual and disposable when really, you know, making music is such a big commitment. In my own musical career, it seems like the only way I learn anything is by doing it wrong. I've skipped out on promo. I've skipped out on recording quality. And the, basically what I've learned is that I can't skip out on anything. And, and uh, I mean, it all has to be to a level because there's so many of us. What I'm getting at is, Adam, what are you listening to? What am I listening to? I'm listening to all kinds of things all the time. It's absolutely impossible for me to realistically answer that question. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it's so eclectic. Uh, it's unbelievable. And, you know, I also have to take in consideration my, my poor suffering wife, you know, um, she might not like listening to, you know, Ethiopian jazz or, <laughs> you know, some screaming heavy metal thing that's come out. <laughs> so, uh, you know, a, a pretty broad range of stuff. And one of the things I've always wanted to ask you since I first started working with you, and we'll, we'll go ahead and wind down with this. If you could have been a fly on the wall yeah, for any album recorded, or maybe, you know, one of the top five, I mean, there's probably more than one. What's on your mind right now for wanting to be there as far as a great album in history. I'm, I'm going to give you a really weird answer. Maybe it's not one you would expect, but um, there are many, many albums that I, I love. Um, and my answer would be, I would choose not to have been there because the, reality of the process of creation is often pretty ugly. I, I would not, I would not have liked to be there for the making of thriller and, and then find out, you know, Quincy Jones is really disagreeable or, <laughs> You know, something like this. I, I just wouldn't want to be there because something I have learned over, over this career is the perception of reality and reality are two very different things. And the, the process of record making uh, is far more traumatic than people can imagine. Um, so, in fact, I, I would choose to not be there. I had a a period of time in the mid 2000s where my uh, production and engineering career were 
getting to a, a very strong level, you know, and my dreams, my dreams were coming true, Kelly. And my, my manager called me. So, so I, okay. First of all, I got to the point in my career where I had a manager and this is quite something. If you're a producer or engineer, you you've made it to a certain point and that's giving you access to the kind of work, you know, real records with real artists. And sure enough, I started to work with uh, a lot of famous producers and a lot of famous artists. And my manager called me one day and said, Adam, I have a gig for you. And I was like, oh, fantastic, Barbara. What is it? She's like, you're going to love this. I'm like, okay, are you sitting down? I'm like, oh, sitting down. Okay, I'm sitting down. She goes, okay. Um, now, how would you like to engineer for Mark Ronson? And I was like, well, that sounds great. Because at the time he was one of the hottest producers in the world. And I thought, this is fantastic. And he goes, oh, she goes, oh, it gets better. I'm like, well, how can it get better? Oh, she's like, how would you like to work with Mark Ronson on a song with Amy Winehouse? And I was like, my God. Because at the time, strangely enough, she was also on top of the world. She was probably the biggest female artist in the world. And I thought, oh my God, this is it for me. I've made it. And there... This is, I've made it. She goes, are you still sitting? I'm like, yeah, it gets better. I'm like, how can it get better, Barbara? She goes, well, you're going to be recording the new James Bond theme. And, you know, a uh, child of my generation, you grew up on this stuff. And this was a stuff of legend. You know, it was like Shirley Bassey, Goldfinger, you know, it's like, Oh my God, there's nothing in the world that could possibly be better than this. My ship has arrived. I'm now going to go on to be fucking, you know, <laughs> one of the famous engineer dudes who you, you know, and always wanted to be when you grew up. And the reality of that experience was absolutely nothing <laughs> like my dreams because unfortunately at that point um she was in the depths of despair and addiction and it ultimately did not want to do it wanted to make a jazz album had absolutely no interest whatsoever in making in the new james bond theme which obviously was traumatic obviously for for Ronson because it was a big deal for him too. And yeah, so we just kind of made a demo and then it, nothing happened. She, she didn't want to, I think we spent like, I don't know, a week or something. And then Ronson got pissed off and left and I stayed in the studio with her for like a month and uh, nothing ever happened of it. So this, this golden opportunity turned into a steaming pile of depressing turd. So, yeah, that's why I would not want to be on the wall for, for the making of any of the classic, beautiful albums, which I love because I know that the reality is often very different to the perception of how it was. <laughs> there you go. Adam, thank you so much. And... I just wanted to say what you said helps me so much in the future 
about not wanting to be there and talking to artists about exposing their process on social media. You know, it's like we want the audience to think we're like wizards, but we tell them on social media, we're like these struggling. Yeah. The strange dichotomy of what re of what actually happens and what the audience is actually presented with. Yeah. Uh, I think turn turns some away, and so I really appreciate you breaking that down. Here's the th- here's the thing, which is complicated. I think, especially for artists who are doing everything themselves, is once they get onto social, there's a big pressure to make quotey fingers content, and content quotey fingers is, is quite often, you know, the making of process and. Unfortunately, most of the making of process is not particularly glamorous or easy or fun, and you're not necessarily at your best as a an artist. You know, like I always apply the when I grow up, I want to be like test to the artists which I love. You know, it's like and 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 I can only I can only realistically take that position because I do not know these people and I do not want to know these people. I only want to know the shiny version that when the curtain opens they're there you know in all of their glory and and it's the same with their recordings for me personally fantastic stuff i really was into this conversation thank you i really appreciate it and i'm super excited for you that you know you're doing some i know you're doing several very cool things at the moment and um it just shows what being open and persevering will get you in life so You go for it, brother. Thanks, Adam. You too. Thank you for listening to Friendly Shadows Fast Tracks. Thank you to Kelly and Adam Whitaker for all the work you've done. Next time, Kelly will be talking to an ethics professor. They're going to discuss what's right and wrong in streaming. You don't want to miss it. 